Welcome to the Speaking Podcast. You can find all our episodes on thespeakingpodcast.com or also on BitChute and YouTube. You find the links in the podcast description. I've also got four other podcasts, The Awakening to Expose Fraud and Corruption, but with Solutions, The Meditation to Help You Chill, Learn Polish to Obviously Learn Polish and the Crypto to Learn About Blockchain Technology. I'm also a podcasting coach. You'll find everything on bio.link forward slash podcaster. My guest today, speaker, best-selling author, podcaster, and patient advocate, please welcome Andrea Wilson-Woods. Hi, Roy. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, delighted to have you on. So you might, obviously, I've mentioned a few things, but you might let the listeners know who's Andrea. <laughs> See, and I just want to listen to you talk because I love your accent. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, so I'm a, a public speaker. I, uh, I'm an author of a medical memoir titled Better Off Ball, The Life in 147 Days. Um, and that's won numerous awards and been endorsed by the medical establishment, which makes me very proud and happy. Um, I'm a patient advocate, so I'm president and founder of Blue Fairy, the Adrian Wilson Liver Cancer Association, uh, which is a nonprofit dedicated to fighting primary liver cancer. And then I'm also a podcaster, too, of the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. And each week I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. Excellent. And we, we're going to dive into the story, yep. how everything began. But what I want to ask first is, what's your own speaking journey? When did that begin? Well, <laughs> I'm going to share a story I don't think I've ever shared before. And this this should have been a clue that I, that I, I was destined to be a speaker at some point in my life. So when I was in the sixth grade, um, our teacher, and he was one of the only male teachers, and he was a fantastic teacher, and he created this thing called the 700 Club. And, and at that time, at least in the U.S., but I think worldwide, the 700 Club was this Christian, I think it was even a network, but it was definitely a show. And he, it was kind of a spin on that, but it had nothing to do with religion. And so anytime you got in trouble in his class, you had to go to the 700 Club and it was miserable and you had to take out a volume of the encyclopedia and you had to pick a subject and you had to write 700 words about it and you had to number every single word and you had to do it and you forfeited all recesses, recesses you know, all extracurricular activities until you were done with your 700 words. And, um, and the only reason I really ever got in trouble in school was for talking. And so I held the record for being in the 700 club three times because <laughs> I'm a talker. And, and I remember I learned about the cast system and I would just randomly pick an encyclopedia. I learned way too much about ants and I forget what the third subject was, but after being in the 700 club three times, he finally sat me down. He said, please just stop talking just just pull back a little bit so so I think the the seed was planted there and I really do encourage people that if you are wondering what to do with your life or maybe what to do next because rarely these days do we stay in one career go back to your childhood and and look and and see what other people noticed about you so I haven't been speaking 
for that long or that consistently, but it started about five years ago with an invitation to Stanford MedX. And, um, but I've made a commitment this year, 2023, uh, to get to a point where I'm a full-time speaker. Excellent. Well, brilliant. Brilliant. And I mean, I've, I've obviously seen some of your stuff, so you're actually a fantastic speaker. So oh, thank you. <laughs> Your new your your kind of journey now is different because you're on a mission and basically I know it all kind of began because of your beautiful sister. So you might let people know about the story. Yeah, I did. Thank thank you so much for doing your homework. So I I have a sister Adrian. We are 14 years apart, and we have the same mother but different fathers. Her father actually died before she was born, and I say that to kind of set the stage. And um and I was always with my sister um, in high school and but then I left and I moved across the country to go to college I attended uh, USC in Los Angeles and so I had finished my university studies I was 22 years old and my sister came to visit me for what was supposed to be a two-week Christmas vacation and she was eight years old at the time and the day after Christmas our mother called and asked if I could take her for a while and said she didn't want to be a mother anymore. And I had watched from 2000 miles away as my mother's life had really unraveled. I realized it about my junior or senior year of high school, my mother was a drug addict, but she was addicted to prescription drugs and she was a nurse. So she had easy access. And, and so it just, it didn't hold the same weight in my high school mind as someone who would be addicted to an illegal substance, right? But after I left home, my mother's life just slowly fell apart. And when she asked me to take my sister, by that time, she had lost her nursing license because she got caught shooting up morphine at work. She refused to go to rehab, even though it is quite common for nurses and doctors to have addiction issues, and it would have been paid for. And um, and I saw the effect it was having on my sister, and I was very worried. And so I said yes, um, even though I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> so I, I, I said yes, even though I definitely did not have my life together. I. I the only thing I had going for me was a college degree at that point. That's it. I had nothing else really going for me. And so I ended up eventually suing our mother in court and getting full legal and physical custody. I raised Adrian all through my 20s. And then one month after her 15th birthday, uh, an ER doctor actually changed our lives forever when he told us that she had tumors in her liver and lungs. And it was really the day before she was fine. She had been having a little bit of acid reflux, but she was a teenager. And as much as we parents try, you cannot control everything your children eat. And so I, I said, stop eating tacos at school, you know, just stop. And, you know, but that was really the only symptoms she had. And then I came home, I found her curled up in a fetal position and crying instead of sitting at the kitchen table and doing her homework. And we went from her pediatrician to the ER where they did a CAT scan. The ER doctor gave us that news. And then we were immediately transferred that night to Children's Hospital Los Angeles. And from the time I came home to the time we got that news, it was only six hours. And I tell people that's how fast your life can change. And that's how quickly our lives changed. 
she never went back to school in person. Um, by that time, I was teaching in her school district. I did not go back to work as a teacher. And two days later, she had a biopsy that confirmed that she had hepatocellular carcinoma, which is primary liver cancer. And it was metastatic and had spread to her lungs. And less than a week later, she was doing her first round of chemotherapy. So it was just this whirlwind of just one hit after another. And this was 20 years ago. And they really had absolutely nothing for advanced patients with liver cancer. And despite doing five and a half rounds of chemotherapy, it, it didn't make a difference. And so Adrian only lived 147 days with that diagnosis. And for more context for your listeners, she died two months after my 29th birthday. So it, it really changed the whole course of my life. Um, while I was raising her, as I mentioned, I was a teacher, but I was also pursuing an acting career. And the following year, I turned 30 years old and I was like, I don't want any of those things anymore. I, I don't. Um, and so I ended up starting my nonprofit, Blue Fairy, at the Adrian Wilson Liver Cancer Association in memory of my sister. And, and really the only reason I started the nonprofit well, there were two. One, I was looking for a way to channel my grief. And two, at that time, there wasn't a single other organization in the entire U.S. that was dedicated to this very specific type of liver cancer. And I knew after going through my sister's journey and all the knowledge I gained, I knew that it was only going to increase. And worldwide, and sure enough, it has. It's one of the most common cancers worldwide. It's also one of the deadliest, and it's one of the few cancers in the U.S. that's on the rise. And and so it really wasn't my life stream to start a charity at all. I never said when I grow up, I want to you know start a charity, but I, I looked around and nobody else was doing it, and I felt like I just had to do something. And And I'm so proud to say that in about two weeks, we will be celebrating 20 years. Congratulations. And I know that you actually you. approached other uh, cancer organizations to even say that you'll do it and they weren't really interested. So they were not it was interested. kind of like, <laughs> hey, nobody's doing it. I'm going to do it, which I love. Exactly. Yeah. I, I wanted to volunteer for other organizations and they were like, no, thanks. <laughs> so, just... so imagine if they had said yes, you know, my life would have taken a, probably a very different turn. I think, uh, you know, these things turn out and, you know, it's because you're so passionate as well, because obviously it's a very difficult journey, you know, especially she's so young, you know, and that you took her, you were basically like a mother or sister kind of thing, yes. you know, so I totally understand that. And I understand how sad and hard it is, but also it's the fuel that's kind of pushing you to actually try to help others. Yes. Yeah, it is. And and I'm really happy to say, I mean, my goal is to see a cure for right CC is what it's called for short in my lifetime. Um, we're not there yet, but but I am so happy to say that even patients diagnosed in advanced stages are living so much long before. And and, um, and it's really incredible. And so there's a variety of choices. And in, in most of the time, I'm living with a pretty good, if not high quality of life, which is also so important. And I know it's a kind of touchy subject for, for, for some, but like I just with the chemo, because a lot of the time we kind of 
go down the chemo route and my I mean I have loved ones that have passed and that have gone through it I know there's other ways I I don't know for the liver because it's not something that I've kind of delved into but I know that there's like say the spooky two device which is a frequency device there's other different things there's even plant medicine there's different places around that are helping people is that something now that you've kind of gone down the journey that you've seen you know, I really encourage patients and their families to look at all options. Um, I, I do encourage them, if they are metastatic, to look at clinical trials. And what's really been coming coming up, I guess is the best way to say it, in the last just few years, is immunotherapy. And immunotherapy has worked really well in other cancers, but it had not initially worked well in liver cancer. And it's starting to, as they're developing, new drugs and also combinations to see and this is for really all cancers across the board because there are companies that are doing this now it's just not affordable yet and so if a patient has to pay out of pocket for this test it's just outrageous how much it is but we will get to a point where prior to doing any treatment you know, you will be able to test your genetics to see if you have specific biomarkers that will actually respond to that treatment. Right now, when you're given, a, whether it's a chemotherapy or an immunotherapy or what they call a targeted therapy, uh, what's it's immunotherapy? kind of a guess. What, sorry, what, what's immunotherapy? Yeah, yeah. Immunotherapy is using your body's own immune system to kill the cancer. And I I am not the person to get like deep into the science of it, but that's just layman's terms. And, um, and like chemotherapy, there are still a lot of side effects for all of these medications. There are really severe side effects. Um, and that's why with liver cancer, especially the earlier you catch it, the better, because the only real cure for liver cancer is a liver transplant or surgery where you can actually remove the entire tumor. However, even with surgery, it comes back 50% of the time. Yeah, because I mean, that's kind of what I've learned with a lot of the medical things. They don't investigate what caused it in the first place. And, you know, they can remove half along their cutting out different parts of people's bodies for different cancers, but they never seem to ask them or investigate what actually caused it. Sometimes it could be where they're living under pylons or something like that, that then they have a better chance of actually kind of surviving from it. But unfortunately, that's never the question. You know, in liver cancer, it actually is because most people who have primary liver cancer do have an underlying liver disease. And so I call it, there's sort of three buckets that can potentially cause liver cancer. Um, and one bucket is environment. You know, there there are exposures to certain toxins, uh, there's a fungus called aflatoxin, which is really common in Asia, but not here in the U.S. or even in Europe that I'm aware of. And it's more of a um, correlation, not a causation, but they just know exposure to that particular fungus can possibly lead to liver cancer. Um, so that's one. There's environment. The second bucket, which I think most people are familiar with, is viruses. So chronic hepatitis B and hepatitis C can lead to liver cancer over a long period of time because they can cause cirrhosis, which then leads to liver cancer. 
And, um, and then the third bucket, which is what needs to be talked about more now and some people might be more familiar with, is lifestyle choices. And I know before my sister was diagnosed, the only thing I knew about liver cancer was, well, alcoholism can lead to liver cancer. But that's not the most common cause of liver cancer in the U.S. Um, and I believe even in the U.K., the most common cause of liver cancer for years was the baby boomer generation that had hepatitis C and didn't know it. Now that is really shifting here in the U.S. I, I don't want to speak about other countries because it's a little bit different. But here now, one of the most common causes that can lead to liver cancer is what they call NASH. And NASH, NASH or NAFLID, which is essentially a type of fatty liver disease. And that boils down to obesity. And nobody wants to talk about it, even though obesity is linked to not only liver cancer, but 12 other types of cancer. And so as long as obesity continues to rise around the world, liver cancer isn't going away. And like, I remember, I don't know, over 20 years ago, I went to Florida and I remember I was shocked with the obesity levels there. Then I saw it coming to Ireland and I was like, and it's in the UK. I moved to Poland and it was kind of like everybody was fit. And and now it's like Interesting. The, all the fast foods are here and now oh. the serious obesity in in poland as well it's yeah it's something i didn't think would happen and it, just in a short period like that oh it's, it's around the a world very high it, percentage area yeah yeah and i will say even though yeah i moved back to alabama eight years ago i'm from all over the southeast i actually went to high school here and my sister was born here in birmingham uh, alabama not england to be clear um but it was still culture shock coming back after living in los angeles for so long not that every person in Los Angeles is fit, but the entertainment industry is so vital there and, and employs so many people that people tend to be fitter in Los Angeles, um, even though California is not not the fittest state in the country. I think that still belongs to Colorado, um, where there's so many outdoor sports. But um, coming back to the South, it was... Yeah, it was a little bit of a shock. It still is. It still is when I get off the plane after going somewhere else and coming here and going, oh, my gosh, you know, 50 percent of the population is obese easily, easily. Yeah. It's terrible. So with yeah. the name of the charity, because I, I, it's not fairy, F-A-I-R-Y, which is the fairy. I know it's spelled, it's pronounced, uh, it's a different F-A-E-R-Y. Yeah. Is yeah. there a difference between that? Because I actually had to check it. I was like, was that spelled wrong? But both <sighs> are showing like fairies. And I don't know why there's a different kind of spelling for it. Uh, well, the American spelling is with the I, so I-R-Y. But my sister had always wanted to go to Ireland. She was obsessed with going to Ireland and she loved to spell any word that she could spell sort of the Irish British way she would. And so that's why we spell fairy with an E and not with an I. It's, it's really just another way. It's a tribute to her. Brilliant. Excellent. So I, I, I saw you speaking at MedEx. I never even heard of MedEx, but it's obviously <laughs> a medical TEDx kind of thing. Yeah, it's, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So like, um, I suppose let's kind of talk on that because one, you, you can kind of touch on what you were discussing, but your preparation for that and how you got about to actually speaking there. 
Yeah, you know, it was one of the first talks I'd ever given in that kind of context with that kind of stage. And it's still one of my favorites. Uh, I've gone back and looked at the talks I've done since. And I'm like, nope, that's still my favorite. Um, it was it was fairly short. It was five, five and a half minutes. Um, I was invited to apply for what they call their e-patient scholar program, um, specifically to speak. Um, and it was someone I knew in the patient advocacy space who nominated me. So I applied. Um, and then I really stressed about what to talk about. I wasn't sure. I went through a lot of different topics. They give you a, a mentor. And I finally decided on um, how euphemisms help us deal with death. Because one of the things I struggled with for the first six or seven years after my sister died, I couldn't say the word died. I just couldn't do it. I, it's like, if I said that D word, then it meant it was true. And, and so I really struggled with that. And so that's what the talk was about, was how we use euphemisms. Um, and I think one of the favorite parts of the talk was I found this incredible map of euphemisms across the U.S. and how every state has different euphemisms. And some are really common, like, you know, passed away. But then there are some like, you know, bought the farm. What? I mean, yeah, you know, or departed. I've never heard that one, but I saw it I know, on the thing. Departed. Um, and I think my favorite one, and this was only like one state, um, and they based this on obituaries in each state. So that's how they came up with this map was gone to another world. Like what? Like just gone. I mean, you know, but there are just so many euphemisms. And so I, I just pushing up daisies was another one. Oh, <laughs> that's one of my favorites. Cause at least that's clever. Right. I yeah. think that's kind of clever. Um, you know, but cashing in his chips, you know, there's, there's another one. It's so silly. Um, but, but I also realized going through my own grief, just everybody really struggles. And I don't know if that's primarily a Western culture, American thing. I'm not sure, but, but people really struggle with saying the word die. They really, really do. And, um, and so the, the talk tells a little bit about my story, um, but it also talks about all these euphemisms. And one of my calls to action right at the conference was to come up to me after and tell me your favorite euphemism for death. And they were hilarious. Like there was one person and people were tweeting me and one person who was like kicked off his clogs. Like, what? what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, um, so I'm really passionate talking about dying with dignity and having that death conversation. Excellent. So the book then, the, the book was basically about your journey during the time. Yeah. Yeah, so the the book, uh, it's very plot driven in that it follows those 147 days of Adrian's cancer journey, where um, each chapter is a day or a period of days. And I did it that way because I kept a medical diary the entire time she was sick, but she was also an amazing writer. And she had started a journal before she ever got sick and kept writing in it. And I, out of respect for her privacy, I never read it. So I didn't read her entire journal until about a year or two after she died. And so by day three, every chapter is introduced with her own words. So you really get to see the perspective of this teenage patient 
dealing with cancer and my perspective as the parent and primary caregiver and sister and, and, and how our perspectives really, there was a point where they just completely diverged where she knew she was dying and I thought she was getting better. Um, I do use flashbacks throughout the book to fill in those gaps prior to the cancer journey. So it really is about that seven year period in my life of raising her and then losing her to cancer. And I think that's like just listening to what you, you've covered that would help anybody going through uh, with a loved one that has cancer because, you know, you're seeing it from both perspectives and there's a lot of confusion, you know, when, when things like this. And I know you mentioned as well that one, and I thought it was very good. You were talking about what not to say to people. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, I think people, when they're trying to comfort someone whose loved one has died, I think really they're just trying to comfort themselves. You know, they mean well. I think people have good intentions for the most part. But things like um, God only gives you what you can handle. It, that one is like probably my biggest pet peeve. Um, because if you take it to its logical conclusion, that means that only strong people get sick. <laughs> you know, because we can handle it. You know, I mean, it's just ridiculous. Um, she's in a better place. That may be true, but that doesn't make me feel better in the moment. Um, she's no longer in pain. Again, that may be true, but doesn't make me feel better at all. And, you know, so what I tell people is it's okay, one, not to know what to say. Um, and if you've never experienced a traumatic loss, you probably won't know what to say. But I just tell people, just say, I'm sorry for your loss. I'm so sorry for your loss. You know, that's enough. It's, it's enough that tells people that you, you care, you know, and if the person, you know, if it's not over zoom, if it's in person and, and they're a hugger and you're a hugger and ask if they would like a hug. I mean, that, that's really the best you, you can do um, because, because grief is um, it's gnarly. It's really tough. And, and that's what my next book is about actually is grieving in my thirties and all these different life changes that I made. Excellent, excellent. So with the podcast then, because I, I believe, is it two podcasts you have or did you start one and then you had another one after that? I had a, a limited series podcast that I did um, now five years ago where essentially it was the audio version of my book. Um, and be, because I worked on my book for a long time, I had incredible mentors. I had many readers for the first draft. It had gone through all these drafts that had been professionally edited multiple times, but I couldn't get an agent because they said the, the writing was excellent. The story was amazing, but it was too sad. And, and so I thought, you know what, I'm just going to put it out there in this podcast format and just see how people respond. And, and it was funny because the podcast was an afterthought. I initially thought I'll just put it on YouTube, but then I'm a real big fan of how can you repurpose content? And so the week before I was like, you know what? I'm going to also make this a podcast. And I knew nothing about podcasting. So if you go back and listen to that podcast from five year, years ago, I apologize. The volume levels are a nightmare. So, <laughs> but I did it and I couldn't believe the response. It was overwhelming. Um, I mean, I don't check anymore, but toward the end of it, there were over 30,000 downloads and like I said, this was a very limited 40 episode series over a five month period. 
and it directly mimicked exactly what our cancer journey was like. And um, my nonprofit ended up getting some amazing volunteers because of it and donors as well. And that those were just, you know, additional benefits I didn't see coming, but it really gave me the momentum to go, okay, there is an audience for this. People, people understand that there's just going to be a sad ending, but there's a lot of humor too. And, and so two years later, I ended up publishing the book. Um, and then the podcast I have now is not specific to my journey. I actually interview other people. I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers. And we just a few weeks ago celebrated 100 episodes. Oh, excellent. Congratulations. Thank you. So, and I've gotten much better at the sound part of it. <laughs> I, I, trust <laughs> me, I, I cringe because I started in, I think, November 2018. I, I go back and listen to my first episodes and I go, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it is what it is. And Yeah. You know, still, you know it, was, it was such a good learning experience, though, right? And and I'm actually the audio book of my book is coming out in March, I think, for sure. I recorded it in September. and. I waited so long to do the audiobook because I wanted someone to be a co-narrator to do all of my sister's lines and her voice. And it was one of those things where, you know, I, in a perfect world, you publish all editions of your book at one time, including the audiobook. But for me, I wanted to wait until I found the right person to do her voice. It was so important for me. And I finally did. It took a long time. And then we finally were able to get our schedules together. And so I actually spent a week outside of Nashville at a recording studio uh, recording with her. And it was amazing. Oh, brilliant. And yeah, I like the fact that you actually held off till you knew yourself, you know, what you wanted. And I think when you do that, you always get the better rewards from it. I agree. I agree. Yeah. So people will the, accuse you of being picky, but yeah, that's okay. No, nah, no, I, I think you just know, you know yourself, you know what you want and you kind of, you wait till that moment till you have it and then you feel 10 times better and you know, the results will actually be 10 times better because of, you know, that you didn't just jump in and just do it. You know, even if like, I think the fact that you have two voices is actually better because people then can kind of connect better with it as well. So I think, yeah, yeah, I think, yeah. yeah absolutely. So with the, the charity then, because there's there's a lot of people also I suppose trying to help or they have their own charity and everything. So what advice, things that you've done and maybe perhaps kind of made mistakes and said shouldn't have done this that you could help that not only will help your own. Obviously you can list your own one that people might be interested, but for those that are kind of doing their own ones that you could give them a bit of advice to try to help their charities. Well, first I would, I would say, you know, don't reinvent the wheel because charities, it's a very competitive space. I mean, I swear it's, it's more competitive than the for-profit space just because the dollars are so limited that you're trying to get, especially when you're trying to get big educational grants. Um, and it, it really pits charities against each other and, and that's not great. And to your point, because you did your homework, had had one of those other organizations allowed me to volunteer and create a program for them, I would not have started my own charity. I started it because nobody was doing anything in that very specific space. So my first piece of advice is don't reinvent the wheel because it's a grind. It really is. And if there's a charity out there that you know, like, and respect, and they're doing things that you want to do, 
go volunteer and go work for them, you know, do that, you know, because you don't want to compete against them. However, if there's not a charity, um, then I, I would say the biggest mistake I made was starting the charity with friends and people don't like to hear that advice, but, um, it really broke up a lot of my friendships because they didn't really understand what the purpose was of the charity. And, and I was just so dedicated and so driven and so focused on making it happen. And my friends wanted to help. And I was like, Oh, that's great. But you know, your friends may not be your best business partners. And even though it's a charity, it's still business. You know, even though it's a nonprofit, you actually still have to make a profit. It just goes back into the business. And I've had friendships evolve now from people I've worked with on my charity, but they were not my friends to begin with, you know, and I think that's a better evolution. You know, it totally makes sense if a business partner becomes a good friend, but it's very difficult to start a business with a good friend or even a romantic partner. I mean, I've seen that. I think sometimes people go in and they just expect somebody to do it and say one person's more passionate and some people just kind of trot along and it can be frustrating when you have a mission to kind of do it. And yeah, you don't want to be kind of affecting your friendship because, you know, you're friends for a reason exactly. and it's better not. I, I agree with it. It's better to be really careful before, whether it's a nonprofit or a normal business be, think carefully between a spouse you know uh, our family friends yeah, yeah Ab- absolutely and and find people with complementary skill sets you don't want people like you you don't want people that have the same skills or the same personality um you want you want people that that bring something else to the table yeah, absolutely so i know that you're uh kind of going for kind of getting more speaking gigs and everything so what have you kind of learned from when you started doing to know what kind of little tips that you could give people that you go oh I can't believe I did that and now you're obviously each time something goes wrong it's far the better but we don't think Mm. it at the time you know I I would say the biggest tip is I, I didn't trust myself enough so there were many speaking opportunities I did where I kept my notes with me and I knew the material and I just didn't trust myself enough and, and, and that hurt. And I think it showed, um, also it's really easy to say yes to speaking gigs when they're coming to you. And, but, and that's, that's what was happening for me over the last five years, you know, here and there getting a speaking gig. But I have realized now that just because someone wants me to speak, doesn't mean I'm the right speaker for them. It doesn't mean it's the right topic. It doesn't mean it's the right audience. And and so I am much pickier now and much more focused. And also I really understand my value. So when you start speaking, yes, you're probably gonna have to speak for free. Um, you know, people wanna do a TEDx talk. Well, TEDx doesn't pay anybody. I mean, it's great to have, you know, to promote and have and as part part of your speaker reel, but they don't pay and a lot of places don't pay. And so you really need to think about what's going to work best for you. And so I think I had a tendency before to just say yes to everything, to get experience. 
And I, over the last year, have pulled way back. I was supposed to speak at an event in October in Philadelphia. And and again, it was a medical conference. And they essentially gave me the topic and said, here, you, you've got this area of expertise. Talk about it. And I just went, you know, they're not paying me. I mean, they're covering all the travel and everything, but they're not paying me. I'm not excited about this topic, even though I'm very knowledgeable on it. Um, and I don't think I'm the best speaker for this. Um, and, and and that may have hurt me. I mean, with that organization, it's possible. But but I just had to trust myself. Um, I had another opportunity that came up to speak March of 2023. Um, and it's a pretty prestigious speaking opportunity because it's speaking to all different divisions of the National Cancer Institute. Um, but we kind of came to a compromise. They they don't pay any of their speakers. And so I agreed to speak virtually if I get to pick the topic. But I'm not traveling somewhere uh, on my dime to speak. You know what I mean? I'm not going to do that. So you just have to be really methodical about it. And remember, it's a business. Initially, yes, speak wherever you can because it's the only way you're going to get better. Um, but then go back and really look at what's working and what's not working for you. Excellent advice. Excellent advice. Listen, Andrea, thoroughly enjoyed talking with you. You might let people know where the charity and the different things where they can find you. Absolutely. So my personal website is just my name, andreawilsonwoods.com. All the socials are there. Uh, for my book, you can go to betteroffball.com and it'll have all the retailers there as well. And for Blue Fairy, it's bluefairy.org. And again, that's F-A-E-R-Y.org. Excellent. Yeah, I'll make sure I put both the links in the audio and the video. Thank you very much. Yes, of course. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's all for the speaking podcast. As mentioned, Brown and Pachute on YouTube. You'll find the links in the podcast description. Find everything about me, bio.link forward slash podcaster. Sure to give us a thumbs up. Five star rating really helps. Make sure you give Andrea a five star rating on her podcast as well. And if you buy her book, do the same because it always helps. Puts it up the charts and then people see it. Yeah. So, <laughs> it does help. <laughs> so until next week, take care.